Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. In 1970, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution that all developed countries should spend at least 0.7% of their gross national income on overseas development aid. To date, only six countries have met this target, the UK becoming one of them in 2013. The UK's Department for International Development, which is responsible for overseeing the UK's aid, states that its work is building a safer, healthier and more prosperous world, not just for people in developing countries, but also those in the UK. Despite this, not everyone supports the concept of aid, complaining that it's too costly, that it encourages corruption, or that it's just another way for governments with power and money to meddle in other nations' affairs. In this episode of LSEIQ, Jess Winterstein looks at the research and asks, do we need to rethink foreign aid? Here's Rafat Ali Al-Akhali, a former Minister of Youth and Sports in the Government of Yemen, on his experience of working with international aid. In Yemen, so after the 2011, you know, what's known as the Arab Spring, there was a change of leadership and a transitional period to kind of adjust into uh, the new way of doing things, let's say. So as part of that new transitional period, there was almost $8 billion in, in aid promised or, uh, to Yemen. And in, in return, the government of Yemen committed to a number of policy reforms. Of course, there was um, because of lack of capacity and, and a lot of different uh, political reasons that... that um, reform agenda was very influenced by the donors. Rafat went on to explain so to me how, in return for the aid, a national conference was to be held to agree what the new Yemen would look like. From this, a constitution would be drafted, put to a referendum and elections held, all within two years. In addition, ten key policy reforms were identified, civil service reforms, energy sector reforms, public finance management, among others. Although private sector partners had already been lined up for several huge public sector projects, now a new law was required before these could be taken forward. Um, So basically the two years were spent trying to draft a law. In the meantime, what was really happening was the economy was was draining and um, people did not see the change they expected out of the 2011 protest movement. The only thing that changed was the one reform that was implemented, which was the fuel subsidy removal. And that's what inflamed uh, a lot of people and allowed the rebel uh, movement in Yemen to capitalize on that and come in and take over the capital. Um, And so in effect, while me and my team were working on this very nice shiny law that ticks all the boxes and uh, getting the new law back to to the parliament, uh, we look out the window and the rebels have already taken the capital and um, Yemen goes down the drain is how the situation is today. The Yemeni experience is a reminder that however good something might look on paper, it's how it works in practice that counts. And while foreign aid has many supporters, examples like the one we've just heard certainly won't sway those who don't agree that aid is either the right way to help bring people out of poverty or a good investment. But what do we even mean by the term aid? And are we giving to be altruistic or for more self-serving reasons? I asked Dr Ryan Jablonski, an assistant professor in political science at LSE. In academia, we don't usually talk about aid. We talk about official development assistance um, because aid can mean uh, money that's given to buy guns and bombs. It can mean money that's given to provide buy food aid. It can be money that's provided for, um, for trade subsidies. But usually when we talk about aid in a research standpoint, we talk about official development assistance, which basically means 
One, that it's aid that's given for the purposes of development or welfare improvement. Um, two, that, um, that it's provided as a grant or as concessional financing so that there's some grant portion to the, um, to the loan. And three, that it's provided to low-income countries, currently countries below $9,000 uh, per capita. So there's, there's basically three traditional reasons why, why donors usually give aid. Um, one is foreign policy, right? So the, um, the classic example here is, um, um, is giving aid to Afghanistan and Syria and Turkey, where we have I mean, so the, you know, the three biggest recipients of, of um, aid to the UK and also lines with what the U.S. gives is Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. Why? Because us Americans have a tendency to blow things up and then donors have to come in and, and rebuild things, right? So that's a pure foreign policy objective where we have a goal to try to prevent terrorism or um, reduce conflict in an area. So that's, that's one, one core reason. A second core reason is to, um, to help our economy. Uh, so donors give money to promote trade or to subsidize domestic industries. Uh, or to benefit trading partners or to influence the economic policies of recipient states. Um, the third reason why, why donors give aid, and this is where aid, I think, gets a little more controversial, is, um, is to provide global public goods, right? We give aid because we want to, um, uh, to eradicate, eradicate disease. We want to lift people out of poverty. We want to um, address refugee crises. We want to um, reduce conflict. Uh, and the challenge with these is, is they're still transactional in a way, right? The, when, when, um, when countries grow, this benefits us all. Um, when we eradicate disease, this, um, this helps the quality of, the, of, of all of us in the long run. When we prevent refugees, right, we, we, we address problems. But the challenge is, is no individual state necessarily has the incentive to provide those goods. Um, so I think where a lot of this debate comes in is, is, um, is should one particular country be involved in, in, provision, in helping to provision those public goods. As we've just heard, the term aid can encompass many types of giving. Development aid responds to long-term structural issues, such as systemic poverty or weak governance structures, which are hindering a country's economic, institutional and social development. Humanitarian aid is designed to save lives and alleviate suffering following an emergency. About 15% of the UK's aid goes towards this type of crisis relief. Dr. Grace Akello, a visiting professor at the Feroz Lalji Centre for Africa at LSE, spoke to me about humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid, it's really a very short term and with a key focus uh, on providing psychosocial support. When people are hungry, you give them food. When they are thirsty, you give them water. And the main focus also is about mental health and trying to make people uh, process the impact of uh, war or the impact of violence on their psychological well-being. So interventions are in place to help them uh, deal with this. So humanitarian aid, if one, uh, if one starting point is their organizations providing support for a short time, for an emergency setting, it is. It, it I think it is working okay. It is working well because uh, the the different people are in need of immediate support, and they will provide this support. But I think in part the challenge is uh, most of these uh, uh, emergencies 
are becoming protracted in nature. So you expect an, uh, an issue to resolve within one year or a few months, but then you are there for 20 years. So it becomes confusing uh, or the, the boundaries are blurred. When does it stop being humanitarian aid and when does it become really development aid? But development aid within a complex emergency, yeah, it's difficult. Countries blighted by long-term conflict, with governments that lack legitimacy or capacity to deliver the change needed to bring them out of poverty, are known as fragile states. It was to address the particular needs of these countries that the LSE Oxford Commission on State Fragility, Growth and Development was established. Rafat al managed the commission, which was chaired by former UK Prime Minister David Cameron. Its report casts a critical eye over current development policy, noting that after decades of aid, many of these countries are still as poor as they ever were. I asked Rafat why fragile states required particular attention. Fragility is becoming more and more the key issue that the world needs to deal with. Um, so in terms of, if you look at the sustainable development goals, for example, and trying to eliminate poverty and leaving no one behind, well, more than 60% of the extreme poor will be living in conflict-affected situations by 2030. So increasingly, if you don't address fragility, none of these sustainable development goals are going to um, be achieved. But not only that, we see a lot of the spillover effects from fragility and conflict affecting not only the countries where it's happening and not only the regions even where it's happening, but really all across the world. And we see that with the um, refugee crisis that um, even Europe suffered from. And we also see that from the rise of extremist groups who find it very easy to operate in places where there's security vacuum, uh, where there's no state to control um, uh, those, those areas. And so for all of these reasons, fragility became a, a much more salient issue that everyone is talking about from international development agencies to um, countries and leaders of governments across the world. Um, and so there's a real need to start focusing on fragile states. On the other side, what we've seen is that we're not really looking at a great track record of addressing fragility in the past, let's say, 15 years or so, um, because we are seeing an increasing number of um, what, are, what is termed fragile states. Um, and we're not seeing many that are able to escape that fragility trap. So something is missing in the current approach towards fragility, both the international approach, but also how governments in these states are uh, addressing these challenges. Think back to Rafat Al-Akhali's experience at the start of this podcast, and you might be able to guess what one of the Commission's key recommendations are. First of all, the new approach that the Commission is calling for is based on being realistic. Uh, so it's a move away from these idealistic visions of what uh, states should be, um, given where they start from. Uh, and the traditional approach is, is basically trying to make them uh, one of the rich OECD countries, seeing them as the model and saying, OK, how do we get from this to that? Um, and as soon as you start doing that, what you end up with is a long list of unrealistic um, 
priorities, so-called priorities, but it's no longer a priority if you have a hundred of them, um, and, and, and then failure that springs from that, because governments cannot uh, achieve and, and satisfy such an agenda. So one big uh, aspect of, of the new approach that the Commission is uh, calling for is realism, and really thinking of step by step what the countries can, can do to move from where they are to a little bit better, a little bit better, until they get um, where they need to go. Um, and, and maybe this is another uh, key uh, factor of, of the new approach, is it's where they need to go, uh, meaning we need to put back ownership uh, at the country level and, and move away from this round of um, telling countries what they should be or where they should go. And this is a very interesting point, because if you talk to a lot of the uh, international development uh, people, I mean, all the agencies, you know, working on uh, international development, World Bank, DFID, USAID, um, the first thing they'll tell you is, um, oh, no, of course, you know, we, we want the, the governments to be leading, uh, countries to be leading, local-led. But when you really look at what is happening in each of these countries, you see the complete opposite. And that's what we tried to document very uh, clearly in, in the report, is actually examples of where this disconnect between uh, the narrative that is uh, often heard in international development circles and the realities on the ground of how assistance and, and foreign aid is, is actually delivered. Another problem is the divide between humanitarian and development aid. Here's Grace Akello explaining what happened after conflict ended in northern Uganda. Okay, so, so when northern Uganda was declared safe and free of armed conflict, so then we moved from humanitarian aid to development aids. Uh, so that means if, if you are an NGO or an, an international organization in northern Uganda, with a mandate to help in complex emergencies, you had to vacate. Yeah, and then development agencies come in. <laughs> and, but the development agencies work in a different framework. They don't, uh, they don't go to the communities, they work from the capital and then negotiate with ministries, for instance, Minister of Health, Minister of Finance. Uh, we have now the Prime Minister's office dealing with disaster areas, like areas which are emerging from disasters. So it is development aid directed to uh, areas emerging from disasters. Then there's the practicalities of the sheer number of agencies offering support following a disaster. In northern Uganda, there were up to over 200 NGOs, local and international. And I think it would, it would work better if they were coordinating uh, their efforts. So typically there would be, uh, for instance, 20 NGOs doing the same thing to the, to the, uh, to the uh, vulnerable communities. To the extent that they were not happy with each other, they were fighting each other because they, they wouldn't want to, to their reports to be influenced by, okay, somebody else did it. And yet this was their mandate. Yeah? This, is, this is really their objective to, to for instance, uh, conduct counseling of women. So the same group of women would be counseled here and then they would go to the next room to be counseled and they would go to the next <laughs> Yeah, so it was like, oh my God, there's too much counseling going on. 
if this the if if the technical people doing the counseling could uh, work together and do one counseling and then the money could be uh, for instance saved for child health so that the ch the children will not die of malaria which was very common then there's the fact that there's always more than one way to approach a problem and that sometimes the line between providing support or hindering others' advancement can be very thin indeed. Here's Duncan Green, a senior strategic advisor at Oxfam GB and a professor in practice in international development at LSE. I just started at Oxfam. I was on one of my exposure trips, we call them, to Vietnam. We were in the most far-flung part of Vietnam where indigenous people are still very poor, even though the country as a whole is doing really well. And we visited a project where um, we were teaching... Uh, among villagers how to look after their water buffalo in winter um, by rubbing alcohol on them, which was fairly eccentric, I mean, interesting stuff. Um, but on the way to that to that little village, which was, you know, incredibly remote, nothing, no plastic, no posters on the walls, no sign of modernity in the, in the homes, very, very sort of traditional homes. Um, on the way there, we'd pass through a village, uh, a, a bigger town, and in that town, were, the backpackers were arriving. And Hmong wear fantastic weavings, textiles. So I just said to the to our local middle class Vietnamese staff who do not speak Hmong, who are, you know, coming in from outside just as we were, what are we doing to prepare the villagers? This could be really good for them. They could actually make money. I've seen projects in other countries where you make money selling artisan, you know, uh, textiles to tourists. And they said, oh no, we want to protect them from all that. We want to keep them pure. And I was just interested, like, who decides that that's the right thing to do. Certainly not the Hmong. It was these middle-class Vietnamese staff who had this um, sort of ideal. So they weren't involved in, in those? No, no. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's really worrying because, uh, it's, I, in my view, it's the wrong approach. We should be preparing people to benefit from globalisation, from modernity, from change, rather than trying to put them in glass cabinets. The fact that good intentions aren't enough is echoed by Grace Akello. Humanitarian aid... Uh can have detrimental effects too. It can have, it can cause uh, what I called in my dissertation unintended uh, consequences, where people uh, coming with good intentions make more mistakes than they expected. Uh, they uh, do more harm. Let me use your phrase. Uh, take the example of uh, gazetting people. Uh, out of the normal context, in, uh, for instance, in refugee camps or in displaced persons camps. So your livelihood is going to be very much directed by the humanitarian aid organizations. You're not able to um, engage in income generating activities. Your school is determined, I mean, whether you go to school at all is determined by if there is an existing NGO with that uh, mandate, uh, if you want water, clean water, you wait if there is one organization which is going to focus on that. Because that gazetted zone also removes uh, authority from the state. So services which were supposed to be provided by state are now provided by humanitarian aid organizations. And so uh, there is a clash, kind of, yeah. especially if, it, if the, the uh, complex emergency becomes a protracted or a long-term uh, 
situation. And then there's corruption. Should we keep on giving when money doesn't reach those it's intended for or goes to prop up governments that don't match our cultural expectations? I asked Ryan Jablonski about his research on aid in Kenya, which revealed that development money was being used to influence elections. I, I was interested in, in um, this question of how local politics plays into um, to aid distribution. Uh, so when, um, when donors give money to a country, what actually determines um, which individual ends up with aid. So this was a very difficult question to answer in, in part because we don't, we don't really have data on who individually benefits from aid oftentimes. Uh, and so the, the contribution of this project was to go and say, let's look at the history of, of World Bank and African Development Bank involvement in Kenya, and let's code on an individual project level where, who ended up benefiting from these projects. And what I found is, is that, um, uh, that if you look at this over time, that that money tends to follow the uh, the political coalitions of leaders. Uh, so you know, if you go from a uh, you know, on average, if you go from a place, a community that's strongly supported, um, strongly supported an incumbent to a place that strongly didn't support an incumbent, you see a shift of about a dollar per capita. So if you're in a community that that, that voted for the um, the incumbent, you're you're getting about a dollar per capita more, which you know and when you're talking about a country that receives on average about $1.50 to you know, $1.30 to $1.50 per capita, that's, that's a fairly large chunk of cash that's, that's determined by these, these political allocation decisions. In one sense, it sounds terrible when you read the headline, but it's exactly what we're doing, isn't it? With, we give aid right. where our politics Yeah, and there's, there's two sides to the coin, right? So um, you know, anytime we're worried about patronage or corruption, we always have to ask ourselves what the alternative is, right? And the alternative... Uh, um, so, it, so yes, giving money, yes, money going to um, you know to rich supporters of incumbent is not necessarily a good thing. On the other hand, um, governments being involved in distributing aid is a very good thing, right? Because when governments are involved in distributing aid, then you have uh, one, you're strengthening the institutions in the government, which, if you want long-term sustainable aid, is a good thing. Um, and two, uh, you allow voters in, in a properly delivered aid program, you allow voters to sanction incumbents for not doing. Um, not doing what they should. The solution is not to cut off aid. The solution is not to um, to try to you know channel aid outside government coffers. The the solution is to strengthen government institutions, strengthen transparency, and strengthen the ability of voters to um, observe what's happening and and provide that um, that sanctioning mechanism um, to make sure that the aid is spent effectively. Duncan Green also cautions against viewing corruption as a one note issue. There's lots of different views on corruption. I find it really interesting. If you're a middle-class parent, do you ever, you know, write extra letters to get your kids into the good school? Is that corruption? You know, there's lots of things. And when you actually ask people in developing countries what they see as corruption, they, they don't come up with the same answers as we do. Um, so, so corruption is partly culturally determined. Uh, you know, co corruption is a tax which we don't approve of is one way of looking at it you know? uh, or a tax that's informal and, and you can't you know unpre unpredictable but you know I was at a seminar uh, on, on this uh, project we've got uh, on public authority last week where people who have to pay bribes to roadblocks as they get their fish to market in the Congo actually say well what that means is the fish is now recognised because I've had to pay a bribe and I get a little form when I pay my bribe, and that actually means that I'm safer. So is that a tax or is that corruption? You know, it's, it's no one told the soldiers to take that money, but it has a benefit. It creates a social contract between the, the, the villagers and, and, and the, the rebels and the army. 
So really interesting. Now that's, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that there is corruption for need and corruption for greed. So corruption for need, low-ranking officials, civil servants, the local person, the only way they can feed their family is to say, can I have some tea money, please? Corruption for greed is, I'm going to take everything from that arms contract and just steal it. Um, and, and I think, you know, to call the whole thing with the same word really confuses trying to find solutions. The Fragility Commission report believes it has some solutions to reduce the problem of corruption. Here's Rafat Al-Akhali. In terms of, of corruption and how to manage that, typically what a lot of donors have right now is what's called a policy conditionality. So, for example, we'll give you the money if you implement this specific policy, you know, do your agriculture this way, not that way. We'll give you this if you establish an anti-corruption authority or whatever. What we argue for is that there's a need to move to what we call a governance conditionality, meaning um, we will give you the money uh, provided three things. Uh, one, that you can prove that it will not be stolen. Uh, you know, you'll not take the money and go do something else with it. So in that's what covers corruption. And we're not talking about necessarily the details of petty corruption or whatever, but you know, if, if donors put their money, they need to know this money is going to go to these uh, projects. So as long as the country can show that, then that takes one box. Um, the second box we talked about is that the program that the country is proposing needs to be realistic. So if a country says, I'm going to do X and Y, it needs to satisfy some minimum level of feasibility, that this is feasibly doable and, and therefore uh, realistic and moves the country towards the goal they want to reach. So the third area is that it needs to show that this money will not be used to favor one group over another. So as long as you're not using the money to, for example, bring one group more to power and specifically uh, discriminate, for example, against another group or put them in a less favorable position. And so if a country can satisfy these three things, then we should be happy with whatever program they think moves them closer to their goals. And they can have ownership of it. Uh, donors should be standing uh, behind it and, and support the country in that. Even if we think, you know, that's the wrong policy and maybe, you know, they can have a better policy or whatever, but countries need to learn by mistake. Society needs to know, you know, we did this and it didn't work and now we should do that. With all these complexities to be addressed, what should we do about evaluating the impact of aid given? Ryan Jablonski. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of careful measurement. Uh, I think it's, um, foreign aid is very, very difficult to get right. Uh, and it's for some of the reasons we've already talked about, right? That, um, that needs are, are very different across communities. You can't necessarily standardize one solution to another place. Uh, oftentimes the solutions are bottom up instead of top down. Uh, and what that means is that we need to, is that, that um, unfortunately most aid is going to fail. Um, and uh, in an ideal world, um, there's, um, there's a saying in business, fail fast, right? That, that what you want is for aid to, um, uh, for, for, new aid, for new development projects to come in and um, be tested, tested well, determine whether they work, and then reform and, and adjust incrementally. That's, that, I think, is, is ideally how it should work. And, and the challenge frequently is, is we don't have the outcome information in order to enable us to do that. 
is it the donor's responsibility to ensure that their money is, is used in the right way or where? I think aid organizations oftentimes make the, the mistake of assuming that their role is, is, um, is one of, of monitoring aid precisely, right? I, I don't think donors should be involved in um, having complicated um, monitoring procedures because donors, frankly, don't have the capacity to do this. Um, and uh, they don't have the information to do this, and frankly, it's not cost-effective. I think um, what donors are better off doing is, is shifting those resources instead towards institution building and, and transparency. Um, so some of the other research I've been doing in, in Malawi, um, we looked at um, the allocation of, of education aid, uh, which is a similar kind of problem. We see a lot of education aid that gets misspent, gets allocated to um, uh, communities that voted for the incumbent, uh, instead of the most needy communities, and um, and what we did is we said, well, let's let's try let's let's take the institutions as given, right? Let's let's take the politicians. You know, politicians are going to spend money where it benefits them the most, um, and rather than you know doing the typical what, what's oftentimes done in the international development community, which is which is to say, let's allocate it, let's you know give it to Oxfam or let's give it to um, some other organization that's going to allocate the money. For instead of the government, let's say, let's, let's work with these government officials, but let's see if there's institutions we can set up to change their incentives. And so what we did is we went and, and gave the money to the, the politicians, but we went and told voters and told uh, local development committees, which are the village level development committees, which are set up to kind of monitor development in communities, and we went and told them, here's the project, here's the decision that's being made, um, and said, you know, if you don't like the, the decision, here's what you can do. Um, and what we found is, is when we did that, you know, you don't, the, the politics and aid allocation doesn't disappear, right? But suddenly um, you're starting to see more, more aid going to needy communities and you're starting to see citizens in development communities get more involved in monitoring what's going on. And, and that I think is, is the, you know, the ideal change that needs to happen. Of course, as Duncan Green reminded me, not everything is measurable. I mean, one of the, one of the big hot topics is, can we count what counts? Right. Um, Einstein said famously, you know, not everything that counts can be counted. Um, and yet there's a huge pressure on aid agencies to measure. And you're basically trying to measure to prove success. And you're trying to measure because we no longer have a trust me, we have a show me society where you have to demonstrate what you're achieving because no one trusts you to do it just with a blank check. And that's yeah, fair enough. I understand that. But that pushes you towards doing towards counting what can be counted, towards doing the easy stuff. It, you know, it makes it very tempting to do lots of vaccinations, give lots of bed nets, distribute tools and seeds, do things which can easily be measured and then reported back to the donor. How do you count women's empowerment? How do you count freedom? How do you count um, you know, a, a massive change in attitudes towards um, gays? Uh, for example. Those are much harder to count. They can be counted. It's much more expensive, much more difficult, much more contested when you try and do so. But I worry that the, the pressure for results is distorting the kinds of things we're doing in aid. So I guess one thing is not to have to say what you're going to measure in advance. So to say, okay, we're going to start out working on water, but we might find out that the real problem is women's empowerment or the real problem is roads. And if we find that out, we're going to change what we're doing. We're going to measure the impact and we're going to tell you about it, but we're not going to tell you in advance. And the, the, this, this idea that you can predict results in advance seems to be fundamentally contradictory with seeing life as a system. 
This need to hold organisations to account has hit the public eye recently when the misconduct of some Oxfam workers in Haiti was made public. It was a disgraceful episode in Oxfam's history, but here's Rafat Alakhali on why we shouldn't allow the actions of some to tar everyone in the aid world. For me personally, it surprised me because Oxfam is doing great work in Yemen, uh, even during the conflict now. Oxfam is one of the very few uh, organizations that are present on the ground uh, doing a, a lot of very, very important work in terms of you know, water, uh, making sure water is still delivered in a lot of the villages and humanitarian aid and um, all across uh, Yemen supporting health centers. As I understand, they are taking the necessary uh, steps to address that. Like to think, and I, from my own experience at least, is that it's more the um, exception than the rule that these things uh, would happen. Duncan Green also addresses the steps that Oxfam has taken to ensure it can safeguard against this happening again. I mean, my personal view on Haiti was it was a moment of, of deep shame and remorse across the organisation. Going into Oxfam's office, it was like someone had died. It was just everybody was absolutely distraught about it. Um, what we've done is a whole bunch of things in terms of, you know, a high-ranking uh, commission of, of, of very prominent women leaders to look at what we're doing, to try and sort out our processes and to make sure it doesn't happen again. But that won't get in the papers, and that's what politicians always say. And, you know, the damage is done to some extent. Um, we've got a, a reservoir of people who who know us and realise that this is not who we are, and they've been, you know, a great support to us. But it, it's been a blow. We've lost income. We've lost income from governments, and we've lost some income from the public. We're having to make redundancies. It's not been a good year. Oxfam's economic difficulties may be self-inflicted, but it's not alone in feeling the squeeze at home. The UK government regularly has to combat complaints it is underfunding its public services, health, education, policing. I asked Ryan Jablonski if our economic difficulties should affect the decision to give aid. What would you say to the argument that people do make now, which is that we, we're in a, an austerity period and maybe it is time to sort of rethink how much we can afford to give um, elsewhere. Um, I suppose, what would your response be to that? I mean, I, I suppose my response to that would be that um, that we need to decide how much we want to contribute to the global public goods. Um, I think it's um, it's it's certainly it, it may be true that we have problems of poverty and disease and everything else in in. Um, uh, the UK and elsewhere, um, but we're also um, in an increasingly interconnected world. That's undeniable. Um, and um, and traditionally, I mean, the UK has been one of the the world leaders at this, which buys the UK a lot of influence in in the world and a lot of influence in international institutions. Um, and you know, if if the UK decides that that it can't afford that anymore. Um, people should realize that that's, that's going to come at the cost of influence in, in international institutions, influence globally, and, and a say in, in, in solving the, the pressing global challenges that, uh, that we face today. All my interviewees were keen to stress that, while there are certainly issues with foreign aid today, aid is also something that can bring about positive change, both to those receiving and giving it. While it could always be made more effective, impactful and achievable, a world where no aid was given would be one where we might all be poorer off. Or would it? I'll leave you with Duncan Green. I guess the final point is that aid will die out, and that's good. So it, it's been, although it's, you know, as I said, aid is rising, it's completely eclipsed by what migrants send home, by what 
governments are raising local taxes and that's absolutely how it should be because when governments raise local taxes that's local politics local social contracts you know no taxation without representation and aid should be a thing of the past so as soon as we get past this the better so i think even though it's great that aid has stayed stable and is slightly rising it's also great that it's being taken over by other things tell us what you think using the hashtag lseiq this episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Jess Winterstein, Shay Forbes-Taylor and Jane Frattee. It was based in part on the following research. Escaping the Fragility Trap, a report from the LSE Oxford Commission on State Fragility, Growth and Development. How Change Happens by Duncan Green. From Poverty to Power, How Active Citizens in Effective States Can Change the World by Duncan Green. How Aid Targets Votes, The Impact of Electoral Incentives on Foreign Aid Distribution by Ryan Jablonski, published in World Politics, and How Transparency Affects Distributional Politics, a field experiment among elected incumbents in Malawi by Ryan Jablonski and Brigitte Seem. Join us next time when we ask, are we entering a new Cold War? <laughs> <laughs>